Therapist Thrival Guide, where we cover all of the things that graduate school didn't teach you. Welcome to the Therapist Thrival Guide. My name is Miranda Barker. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I am here with Dr. Lucas Vellini, LMFT. And I am a family therapist. Sure. Yeah. And when I say that, I'm not speaking to being a licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm saying I'm a family therapist in the sense that I actually do family therapy. And that's really the only therapy I'm interested in doing. And pretty much the only therapy I've done for the last five or six years I've been practicing. And I say that because there are a lot of people called a licensed marriage and family therapist that don't do family therapy. Um, and there are people who can do exceptional family therapy that aren't licensed marriage and family therapists. And so today's topic is about family systems and what we really mean when we say family systems, what family therapy is, you know, kind of where it came from, maybe um, where it might be going. And so there's nobody else I'd rather do that with than Kyle Minnis. Welcome, Kyle. Thanks. So Kyle is a therapist at Entero Psychedelic, so our psychedelic therapy uh, clinic in St. Paul, uh, moving over to Mendota Heights shortly in a new location. In Minnesota. In Minnesota. And I also used to be Kyle's professor. And supervisor, right? And supervisor. Clinical supervision. Yeah. And now I'm his best friend. And he's my really good friend. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And Kyle is also an LMFT, right? Correct. Yes. So you want to say a little bit about yourself? Uh, Sure. Yeah. I don't know what to say, but Kyle Minnis, LMFT. um, Yeah. What what, uh, what am I supposed to say? I don't know. Uh, Well, you're a family therapist. Yeah. I'm a family therapist. Is that your favorite, like, specialty thing to dive into? I, th- I think it's less than a specialty and it's more like a worldview. Like you can't really stop being a family therapist once you see the world in a family therapy way. So it's like, it's not about what I do. It's literally how I see the world. And that's, I, that's the difference. And that is why we have him on this <laughs> podcast because yeah. he answers it in that way. That's perfect. Yeah. And it's like, I get that, you know, yeah. but it's not, you're one of the only people I know. You're the only, you're the only person I know at like a peer to peer you know, like social level, friendship level, also professional level, that gets it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why for many years, all of my friends were in their 70s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really hard because once, yeah, once you see the world that way, you can't get rid of it. And then you feel really lonely in it as well. Yeah. Because you see the world so differently and the ways you talk about people or see even individual problems like when i'm working with even an individual therapy i just see the ghosts of their family and Mm. i'm just asking questions within as if it's family therapy and i start guessing about you know is mom like this and you know dad like that and you know is your sister like this and they're amazed Mm. by what i'm able to say and it's like but it's because i'm i see the world as a family therapist or in a systemic way and that it's not something you do and it it informs every single intervention and action you do. And yeah, it's like, there's not many of us. And, and like when you, when you can truly see a family as a system, mm-hmm. you know, and like one of the things is like when I think of a family, I don't 
think of how many people are in the family. Like I think of one thing. I think of the family as the system. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's, it's one thing to focus on. And like when you really dig through cybernetics, like you're also the only student I ever had who read Bateson's Steps <laughs> to an Ecology of Mind well in your master's program and when it wasn't even an assigned text. Yeah, I just read it for my free time. Was... <laughs> and that book took me, I spent years with that book. Yeah. You know, like to get it all to click. Yeah. Um, but when you, and that's the thing about family systems therapy or family therapy um, that I think a lot of people don't get. I think even a lot of um, MFTs don't fully comprehend it, just depending on what program they went to and how it was emphasized. Uh, but the foundation of marriage and family therapy are, is based on theoretical models that have nothing to do with healthcare or the medical field or the social or behavioral sciences. It was like cybernetics and general system theory. Cybernetics is largely was birthed out of uh, mechanical engineering. Mm-hmm. Like it's a theory to explain how mechanical systems function mm-hmm. largely. And actually the, uh, the space program, Star Wars, and its ability to take down another missile and it's using a missile to take down an, a nuclear missile yeah. and the relationship between the two that has to continually change its feedback position. So yeah, it has nothing so like, to do with humans. And like the uh <laughs> like in the like we've all seen Top Gun. If you haven't seen Top Gun, that's okay. But what, if you haven't seen Top that? Gun Maverick, <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> it's maybe yeah, one of the greatest movies ever made. Well, yeah, just skip past the but anyway, story, you know. Anyway, um <laughs> You know, like they're in the plane and like they got their little joystick thing and it's super tense and they have like this little tracker and it's, you know, going like boop, boop, boop. And like they're trying to get it to lock onto the other plane. And then some way, but like we're just watching them. It's like, what would look so hard about that? It's like, is, but it's like, it's not an aiming system. Um, and when it does lock on, when it clicks, it's like, that's because it's detected that other plane's homeostasis. Mm. Okay, so it's like, this is cybernetics. I'm going to put in a nutshell, and I think that's the best metaphor to use it uh, with is systems are rule-governed. Like, they organize around a set of uh, established rules, um, and those have to adhere to underlying principles of, of how this system, like, where are the rules governing kind of the meta level of the system almost? And we make sense of systems through... Well, first and foremost, homeostasis. So, like, what's its current, like, natural rhythm? You know, and that rhythm, it homeostasis isn't a matter of, like, healthy or unhealthy. It's, like, whatever the homeostasis is, it's just what the homeostasis is. And even if it's dysfunctional, it could still be functional for the system because the system knows how to be dysfunctional. You know, and so it's all about predictability. So even when things are chaotic and unpredictable, there's a predictability to the homeostasis that the system is going to be chaotic and unpredictable. Um, and the way that they balance homeostasis is through negative and positive feedback loops. And when we say negative and positive feedback loops, it has nothing to do with good or bad. It's about negative feedback loops are about conservation. Positive feedback loops are about like change, adaptation, um, doing things differently. And so to maintain homeostasis, it's like you got to balance uh, negative feedback loops, so conservation with progress. Like if the system stays too rigid and there's too much conservation, it's going to die. If the system loses all conservation and it's constantly caught up in positive feedback loops to the point where it's changing beyond the point of even being predictable and its unpredictability, it's, the system's going to die. 
it's going to fall apart. And so it's all about kind of like the tug and war and how the system dances to maintain homeostasis. And so get and homeostasis is when the system becomes predictable. And so back to the two fighter jets, like when the, when you're on the tail of another plane that you're trying to shoot down, it's like, you need to track it long enough. So the system that's trying to lock onto it can start to predict its next move. Mm -hmm. And so that's why fighter pilot training, like when you're trying to escape an enemy aircraft, and this is one of many things that makes the notion of being a fighter pilot insane. Like 0.1% of humans are capable of fulfilling that role. It's like you're in a, the most high stress situation imaginable. You're flying a billion dollar plane a million miles an hour while someone's trying to shoot a missile at you. Mm -hmm. So you die. Um, and as you're doing that, you have to maneuver in ways that never falls into a predictable pattern, mm. which requires an incredible amount of like cognitive thinking mm -hmm. when you're under that much stress but as soon as your maneuvers of trying to get away from the plane become predictable that's when it turns green it's identified your homeostasis you know missile hits the plane maybe you ejected maybe you're dead um and so this guy gregory bateson like listened to someone say everything i just said and he was like oh that's a family <laughs> yeah well, and that that's where family therapy came from largely yeah and he learned it through his studies in anthropology in New yeah. Guinea and saw the same kind of uh, balancing system that would happen. And so in New Guinea, the uh, the culture, let's say, is more masculine, but there'd be one day of the year that where they would act, all the men would act feminine and the females would act masculine. And he had <sighs> no understanding why. That's so great. I yeah. love that. So all the men would act, um, they'd wear dresses and like do like, like the womanly stuff and the women would act manly. And so it kept balance in the system for the whole year but yeah and he i think he made a word up for it um yeah no naven up, it was called naven he had to make up so many words yeah naven was what it was called mm. that's uh that system within the new guinea i think new guinea tribe um and then he just kind of brought that from the anthropology and then there was the um probably the 1930s when like bird was reading about uh, general systems therapy theory and which like, is like, like a lot of mathematics yeah in the mathematical aspect there's the biological part with germ theory um, there's a lot of things coalescing, coalescing to create the idea of systems theory. And then that was applied to families in the 60s with uh, the Palo Alto group, which was Bateson, Vlatsovic. Um, it's yeah, tier. the first people doing like legit, like couple and family therapy yeah. with, but not in a way where it was the, there were folks trying to take psychoanalysis, like the transgenerational people like Bowen, um, object relations they were trying to take psychology and make it systemic, you mm -hmm. know, and like do what the psychologists are doing with individuals, but apply it to a family system. MRI uh, in Palo Alto, they worked with Bateson, who was a guy who just had these crazy theories from mechanical engineering and, and mathematics. And, you know, he had, he was a multidisciplinary thinker, so he couldn't get a job at a university because they'd be like, what department do you want to work in? Mm -hmm. And he'd be like, all of them. <laughs> like every single yeah. one. His, like I need to choose one. That's ridiculous. His job title at Palo Alto was theory artician. Yeah. <laughs> he was never a clinician. He never actually worked with people, but he advised all these people to do systemic therapy interventions that were insane yeah. and brilliant. Mm -hmm. That's where they were doing like all the paradoxical interventions. Mm -hmm. And I love paradox. Mm-hmm. Um, it terrifies most people. Yeah, it's hilarious though. Because they don't get it. It's yeah. not taught well. Like it's difficult to teach paradoxical interventions well. Um, 
and a lot of professors teach about it as if like it's extinct like it's a relic yeah, you know and it's so like sad. this is what they did but you know yeah. we don't do that anymore and well, it's like what are you talking about well give me an example of that of like a paradoxical someone so someone continually asks you for advice right you get a client that's like well i need to do this i need to do that and you as a good therapist you're going to give them good advice so you tell them to go meditate or do yoga a paradoxical intervention well first you have to figure out what the the homeostasis is what the the general plan is which they ask for advice you give advice they reject the advice so a paradoxical intervention would be to ask them if they've tried heroin <laughs> which does that and so what they do is like that's stupid and then they make their own decision mm-hmm. so they stop asking for advice and so you figure out what the bigger system is the bigger plan of it and then you make an intervention at that which sounds which is paradoxical at the first level which is the advice one but at the bigger level it's actually the correct intervention and it's like it's um it's based on resistance yeah you know and so resistance is like what Bateson helped figure out about family systems is families want to change like at the surface level. that's why people come to therapy they're like i want to change things aren't going the way i want them to go i want them to go differently but because of like when we started to understand families as rule governed systems that demand homeostasis homeostasis resists change so their their current state of homeostasis they come into every single dynamic that governs their family system even if you're an individual like your individual role in your systems all those powers are at play to keep you the same like they want things to stay predictable and that's like virginia satir one of the most one of my favorite mm-hmm. quotes of her finding of um and she was trained at mri she was their initial clinic director and then she just couldn't take the toxic masculinity of jay haley uh she's like i need to get out of here Which, and go enough. be a global humanitarian yeah, yeah. and just save the whole world instead of just these rich people in palo alto yeah, yeah, yeah. um people prefer the certainty of misery over the misery of uncertainty mm-hmm. and so these people are coming to therapy saying they want to change and what they noticed to be super ineffective in all the other therapy models were the therapist was like great let's change you know, and they didn't anticipate the fact that you're saying you want to change, but you're actually here to resist change. Hmm. So my first battle is to outmaneuver the resistance. And when somebody's resistant to change, if you respond to that by trying to help them change and put more force toward them changing, that just strengthens the resistance. Because anything that's resistant, it's like the more pressure you add to what's resisting, it increases. It hmm. doesn't get weaker. And so they said... You know, what their idea was, and this is paradoxical intervention, instead of trying to combat their resistance, we're going to outmaneuver and kind of trick the resistance and use it to our advantage. And so instead of getting people, when people are doing something that's not helpful that they want to change, instead of trying to get them to start doing something differently, paradox pushes them deeper into doing more until their system organically starts to resist staying mm-hmm. the same. Mm-hmm. And so like the resistance can kind of flip flop and there are a lot of different ways that they did it, you know, out positioning or pushing people deeper into um, the problematic behavior was one of them. But ultimately what you're doing there is you're getting them to break one of the rules that's governing their system. But when you're talking about this, you're, or when you're talking about these experiments or you know this research, it was done on individuals 
not it not within the context of family therapy. It was only done with families. It, it was only MRI, done with MRI, the, yeah, the Mental Research Institute worked exclusively with um, married couples or married couples and their children. Oh, I didn't know that. So one of the historical issues that they were happening was in uh, was the treatment of schizophrenic or schizophrenia. So in the 50s, they were really trying to figure out how to deal with schizophrenia, and they found that schizophrenics would go to a hospital. You know, they'd spend six weeks or however mm-hmm. long. They'd get better. They'd go out. They'd go see their mom, or their mom would come in, and then um, all hell would break loose. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to figure out why is it that this person who their argument was that was out of touch with reality, had a reaction to something in the real world. So then, you know, of course, it started off with the idea that, well, it's schizophrenic mothers, mm-hmm. which then eventually we figured out that, you know, well, schizophrenics. It must have been the mom's fault because the, yeah, yeah. the dad was at work all day. And then, then we figured out that schizophrenics have dads too. Mm-hmm. And then we figured out that usually there was a relationship between mom and dad that wasn't healthy and they were using the kid, or one way to look at it, using the kid as a way to mediate the difference between mom and dad. So then it was like, let's bring them all in. Mm-hmm. And then that's where kind of the idea of the you know, Palo Alto group of, yeah, bring the whole family in. Because why not? And like every, and this is what I, one of the infinite things I love about true family therapy. Um, but we always wanted, they always wanted to get the whole system and they wanted the parents and all the kids in there. But every single model is, it's like, it's pretty clear. They don't always say this blatantly or out loud. But the kids more or less almost have like, the kids are never part of the family's problem. The kids are there because they play a role in how the parents are ineffectively going about managing and resolving their issues. And so like the kids are largely there to be relieved Mm -hmm. of having to play any part in it anymore. And for it to almost like implicitly be communicated to them that this never had anything to do with any of you. Yep at all Mm -hmm. you know and so it's like how are you using the children to maintain this problematic pattern of behavior and how can we get the parents to take responsibility for changing the rules of the system Mm -hmm. and so that's when we get into first order and second order change which my goodness you guys this is just so good like (sighs) oh just listening to you vibe off of one another this is i just i'm gonna turn my mic off and just listen i love this like when we go yeah this is hang out on a friday so we'll just talk about well and and like (laughs) on a a really small scale just what you're i mean i don't feel like i've understood cybernetics so well but then then how you but i know but i'm just saying like you're you're explaining this really well this is good but even just i i mean i'm an individual therapist but um, but the way that you're describing this, I'm like, yes, yes, you know, you're totally right. This is good. I love this because like, so for, for like an example, I see 10 year old boy who is just like really anxious all the time. And then, you know, I see him for a few weeks or a few months and I'm realizing like, this is not like, there's so much more to this obviously. And you're going to be able to like, listen to this and be like, oh, dumb Miranda. But like, I start seeing, seeing this kid start like seeing the family more. Um, because when you're seeing kids, you're going to end up, you know, bringing the parents into sessions anyways. Like that's just, Mm -hmm. that's just how you should be doing it. Um, and then pretty soon you start to realize like, okay, wait a second. Like, there's these other dynamics at play. There's, you know, another sibling who's definitely taking like all of the attention, needing to almost be parented by kid, you know, just like there's so many different things at play. And so then we talk about doing family therapy, but um, because for a similar reason to, to let the kids like, you know, feel like it's not all of their problem, that it's actually, you know, the system at large. But um, 
the the dad didn't go to family therapy. He was like, well, that's good. Mom can mom can do that and get some parenting skills. And um, family therapy was extremely successful, as you can imagine, with this family because you're just like, no, this is not. That's not what we're talking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so even even when you get there with an individual client and start to look into like where is everybody else, mm-hmm. it's like that gives you a whole lot of information <laughs> about what this kid is dealing with mm-hmm. and what he's living in. And so there's always information we can gather when the system isn't there. But like when it's a, I don't even call individual clients individual clients. I just call them scapegoats because that's <laughs> what they are. Because when someone goes to therapy by themselves, it's like they're just a scapegoat of whatever whatever system. I think especially in. if. Yes. No. And I think especially when you're looking at kids being in therapy and the parents refusing to go to therapy or feeling yeah. like it's the kid's problem, like the kid has and It's like behavior. you're driving them here. Yeah. So why don't you just come in? Yeah, yeah. Well, but I think a lot of clinicians are scared of the idea of family therapy. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, yes. No, they should be. They should be. <laughs> well, but like, yes, I, I bring parents into sessions, but I wouldn't consider myself a family therapist, you know, which I, I get is like not... You know, I get, I get it. It's, no, a, yeah, it's not but exactly, it's, yeah. but it's different. You know, it's, it's cause yeah, it is. And there are a lot of ways to also like work with families, you know, that is effective and helpful, but it's not what at least Kyle and I are talking about when we talk about like systemic family therapists, like governed by cybernetics and mm-hmm. general system theory, theory, like at the origin of when it all began in the fifties and sixties. And so you know, we talked about kind of like homeostasis, positive, negative feedback. So this is how systems organize. Um, and what I love about that concept is, and this is what I, what Kyle was getting into earlier. It's like when you see it click for a family, it's like because these theories weren't developed for families, they were developed for any form of system and they universally apply to any system. It's like all of a sudden you see it everywhere. You see it at the office. You know, it's like you see how... Mm-hmm. Um, your social systems organize, you we know, all fit a role or like, yeah, a, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and then it, it's not just, it, it gets much larger. It's like, so I was talking about how systems are governed by an underlying set of rules that make, you know, kind of patterns of interaction predictable. And as they do that, they have to balance conservation and progress, you know, based upon those set of underlying rules. It's like, and I just described U.S. democracy and our constitution. You know, it's like our constitution is the underlying set of rules that's governing our social system. And then we have two primary political parties. One's about conservation. The other one's about progress. You know, and it's like, if they did that well, it's like a two-party system could absolutely work. Hmm. You know, but it's, it's, things get problematic in any system when the efforts to conserve and the efforts, you know, to progress and adapt when they start seeing each other as threats as opposed to, like, useful functions, mm-hmm. you know, that can be helpful. Um, and so when you start to see it everywhere, it's like you see it everywhere. It doesn't turn off. And you, and it's not only, like, understanding how the systems function, but it's understanding, like, how systems change. And that's first order and second order change. And I think this is brilliant because... It's like, I feel like a lot of models and even some people, it's like they're giving up on second order change and maybe I should explain them first, Um, but it's like, okay, so because a system's governed by a set of underlying rules, 
if you're trying to change that system, ultimately what you need to do is change the rules that are governing it. And, but what gets tricky about that is, and that's second order change. First order change No, is, so wait a second. Before you go into that one, could you give me like a, a family therapy example of like maybe a behavior you're trying to change and how you might do that? Uh, I have an example. It's not a family one, but we that could works, yeah. start there. So let's say, um, this is the one I've been using for you know, a couple months now. So let's say you hurt your left foot, right? You got it hurt, doesn't, you know, can't walk on anymore. So you start spending more time on your right leg. That starts to get bigger and stronger, but your left one starts to atrophy. Well, if you then step on your left foot, it starts to hurt even more. So you step, start stepping on your right foot and using your right leg more, but then that starts to get really painful. So then eventually you come into therapy or someone asking, can you help me make my right leg stronger? Right? Which would be skills. It would be other things like that. First order change would be to help them make their right leg stronger, which is not going to work long term because you need to be able to balance the system out. So second order change is to look at the other problem that is that the first problem is trying to help. And so you go up a level of analysis. So basically every, at least how I see it, every problem someone comes in with, that's not the problem. Hmm. That's the solution to a bigger problem mm -hmm. that's much scarier. The ineffective mm -hmm. attempted yeah. solution. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Or it's not working anymore, mm -hmm. right? And uh, maybe at an individual level, depression. Depression is, if, or at least how I would see it, is anger pointed at yourself because that's safer than being angry at the person who you depended on. So the problem would be is being able to lose that person. You don't need the depression anymore. Mm -hmm. And if you need to be in a position where you need them dependent or you're, if you're dependent on them, being depressed puts you in a position where they will take care of you instead of maybe being angry at you mm -hmm. or something else. And so you know, when you talk about that, it's like, okay, you have to figure out what is it that's, what's useful about this issue mm -hmm. that's helping them out. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that I don't think makes any sense to us or no one's ever asked is like, why do people have mental illness? Like, why does that make sense within the biological system that we have? If not, like, why would we have that? Why would we have the ability to be very anxious or mm -hmm. be depressed or schizophrenic? Like, it has to be functional at some level of analysis, even short term. So it's those questions that, you know, family systemists would, would ask. And, or another way maybe to put it is within this framework, maybe it's not answering the question, but the idea of like, it's not, why is this person have depression? It's like, how did this family create someone that could have depression? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So it's like mom and dad bring in their 12 year old son to therapy because he's acting out. Mm hmm um, so the problem that they're identifying is that the son's acting out. Uh, you do an assessment, you know, so long as you have the parents there and, you know, pretty quickly you'd come to realize that, you know, not too long ago, mom and dad started fighting a lot because dad lost his job and things got really strained with finances. And the more that they fought, the less attention they were paying to their son. And one day, you know, the son was feeling down about it. So he was just more disinhibited. Um, and he acted out at school mm -hmm. and hit somebody. Mm -hmm. And when he acted out, acted out, it's like mom and dad came to school. They had a conversation with the principal. They went home, spent the rest of the night talking to their son about how much trouble he's in, how disappointed they are. But they were talking to their son. Bad press they is weren't, always good press. Yeah, it's like mom and dad weren't fighting mm -hmm. and they were paying attention to mm -hmm. me. And that was a better alternative than 
mom and dad fighting and not paying attention to me. And so he just keeps acting out because when mom and dad start fighting, if I act out, they'll stop fighting Mm -hmm. and they'll pay attention to Mm -hmm. me. And so if you try to, and what, like, I, I, this is a wild guess. It's based on nothing. Maybe three out of five therapists would just work with that kid who's Mm -hmm. been described as having a behavioral issue. Right. Um, Hopefully less than one out of five therapists would diagnose him with an oppositional defiant disorder. Um, And that's the world of individual pathology. Mm -hmm. That's not based on systemic thinking or context. Uh, And so first order and second, yeah. So you want, families will find all sorts of different ways to change the behavior that's maintaining the problem to trick themselves into thinking they're changing when they're really not changing at all. You know, they're, and so an example I use is if you had, and this, this was from an old colleague of mine, another old professor of Kyle's McMahew, shout out. Um, if you had 12 eggs and they were all in an egg carton and they were labeled 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and then you were asked to reorganize those eggs, first order change would be the eggs being re- reorganized to show 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 1, 2, 3. And so that's first order change because they're in a different order, but they're still governed by the same set of underlying rules, Mm -hmm. which is three comes before four, five comes after four, six comes after five. And so it looks different, but it really hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. Second order change would be opening that carton of eggs and seeing it say six, three, one, seven, nine, 12, 11, 10. You know, and so... Now the system's reorganized in a way that changed the underlying rules that are governing it. And so it's like, that's the change you want to target with families. And so the way you help that kid to stop acting out is to get mom and dad to find a more effective way to manage what's driving the conflict that led them to just start arguing and ignore their kid. Mm -hmm. And so the kid really doesn't have anything to do with that, but it's critical that he's there. Mm -hmm. It's critical that he's there so that he can realize it's a family issue and not just Well, first him. and foremost, it's critical that he's there because him being there is the only reason that mom and dad are there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mom and dad don't know that they're more so the client yeah. than he is. And you need to maintain that illusion for them mm-hmm. just long enough. You know, it's like you need to join with them at that level because that's your only hope of joining with them. And so it's like if you really want to help that kid in the most efficient way, that takes that will really require him to not have to do anything because he's a kid. Mm-hmm. He shouldn't be worrying about like how to change his behavior so his family could be less stressed. It's like the f- parents need to figure that out, or the parent does, so he can be freed to just develop and be a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's, kids are leveraged to get mom and dad to take greater ownership of governing their system in ways that are going to be efficient and stop displacing that onto the children and using them as scapegoats. One of the easiest and probably most maybe explosive interventions you can do is to bring the family in and then just have the kid explain how the parents fight. Hmm. Just go into detail and just ask them everything and then just let them go, <laughs> honestly. Mm-hmm. And it, it exposes that the kid is seeing all of this and that it's not just the kid's fault. Because right. it's, it's almost always the mom calls to say their kid is doing something the mom doesn't like and 
it's never that, you know, but it would be a lot easier if it was. It'd be easier than, you know, dealing with mom or, you know, dad's, Mm -hmm. you know, alcoholism or, you know, the other kid who's like being a perfectionist. And yeah, it's like you have to ask around the issue. Mm -hmm. It's never it's never it's almost never the thing they come in with. And that's why it's so interesting. Yeah. You know, it's like you're playing. It's a constant game of chess and a Mm -hmm. strategy Mm -hmm. from the moment that they first sit down, like throughout the entire process. And you're you're paying attention to so many things that they would never guess you're thinking about. You're asking questions for reasons that they would they would never guess. Like why like a lot of questions seem totally benign they seem, yeah, or absurd. irrelevant yeah. often. So like give me some examples. Um gosh, it's what's tricky about examples like that for me is like this is so spontaneous and experiential mm. and like totally dependent upon like what comes to you in the immediate moment. Um, but like, maybe we'll use a Whitaker example. <laughs> um, this is one of my favorites. He's doing an intake, you know, with a family, dad's a farmer, you know, kind of mom comes in with the kiddos. Um, and pretty quickly he picks up on the fact, and he also, he was familiar with farming culture. So he's like, this dad's probably totally disengaged. You know, it's great that he's here. Whitaker would never see any client unless every member of the family committed to mm-hmm. coming. Um, if it was like, you know, mom's coming with like the three kids, but dad won't. It's like, well, give me a call back when dad's ready to get on board. Good, good day. Mm-hmm. You know, and then he'll just move on to the next one. And his, and that's because he knew that like he, it, it would be a waste of his time mm-hmm. and it would be a waste of their time. Um, and so, you know, he picks up early on that mom's overstressed because she's getting no attention. The kids barely have a dad. You know, dad's depressed, you know, as hell because he just, you know, is li- living on a tractor, totally disengaged from his family. Um, and so Whitaker spent like 40 minutes just talking with the dad about tractors, like really digging into tractors and like, like glorifying like farming because, one, he knew dad was going to be most resistant to join. And so it's like you always identify what fa- what member of the system feels most disengaged and will be the most difficult to join with. And that's where you put your initial focus because if you can get them to start stepping in, uh, the rest of the family is just waiting for their turn mm-hmm. at that point. And so at, at one point, you know, like mom's getting increasingly tense because this is what she's sick of living with. <laughs> it's just constantly everything's about tractors. Um, but Whitaker hypothesized that mom was suppressed and because she was so suppressed and like keeping showing a good face because that was part of farming culture. It's like dad had no way of taking the problem seriously. Uh, And so he did that until mom like very expressively just like freaks out. Snap. Will you stop talking about tractors? And, And Whitaker's like, and that's when we began family therapy. So it's like, active you know Whitaker is all about activating like deeply suppressed emotions Mm -hmm. because that's how that's a good way to disorient the family and start to break the rules that are governing the system is by getting them to open up and the more you open up and express yourself it's like now the rules governing your system are changing they have to because the system needs to reorganize to figure out how we're going to respond to people being emotionally expressive now Mm -hmm. um and so like the things that can happen in family therapy are so interesting what you're saying just is reminding me so much of our conversation about group therapy too. And oh, how yeah, you, you yeah. can't hide yourself. Yeah. And that's why group therapy, I love group therapy because it's super systemic. Mm-hmm. And 
like it, it's it's there's just as much complexity there but in a different way because mm -hmm. um, when you do group therapy and i didn't get into this on the one-on-group -on -group therapy but you're not just working with like the six to eight people in the group you're working with the six to eight people in the group and all of their families well, and so then do you, do you find, sorry, we're going into like groups just a little bit, but do you find that when you're doing group therapy and you're viewing it from this lens that people are putting themselves into the role in the group that they are, are they are in their families or oh, are they yeah. taking on a yeah. different role? No, they're, they're assuming their sibling position. They're projecting, um, all of the crap from their parents onto the facilitator, mm -hmm. um, the mic, like and in their sibling position, it's like they're projecting their different parts from some of their siblings onto other group members, mm -hmm. you know? And so like the group itself becomes much more of a family system yeah. than it does just a group with like a facilitator that's kind of in it and kind of out of it. But it's like all of, yeah, all of their family systems are getting <laughs> spilled out onto each other, <laughs> you know? So that's, that can get pretty wild too. Um, what's maybe, but what's one of your favorite family therapy interventions you've done or paradoxical interventions wait so before you go into that do you we're talking so much about paradoxical intervention yeah. er, interventions is that always what's used in family therapy no. so no. so like i just want that distinction made of like yes you guys are talking about this but there are <laughs> it's different well, i mean i guess i would say like when i think of the classical schools like the most truly systemic schools Three of them are uh, MRI, Systemic, uh, Milan, and Strategic. And all of those were more or less fundamentally organized around paradoxical intervention. Hmm. Um, or at least paradox was a component of all of them uh, to different degrees. But even with uh, the other two I would include are uh, exper symbolic experiential and structural family therapy. And Mnuchin and Whitaker absolutely use paradox, but in very different ways, like mm -hmm. much more subtle ways. Mm -hmm. Like Whitaker's was more about absurdity and spontaneity. Uh, Mnuchin's was sneaky. Mm -hmm. His was the sneakiest, um, the ways that he would use paradox in his work with family systems. And all of these people too, they only worked with family systems. And these were the models developed not out of, as an extension of psychoanalysis, but truly just for the profession of family therapy. Um, so we can talk about like how this stuff all comes together. Yeah. The, I mean, any intervention that works at the second order level is what a family therapist would do. So it's just breaking the general bigger rules mm -hmm. and paradoxical is one of the easiest ways. I think what Whitaker would do is he'd figure out what the, if I guess it's hard to figure out Whitaker, but <laughs> cause I've been thinking about it for yeah, five years now. I think if everyone in a family is playing a role, what Whitaker would do is just be him and he'd be crazy and he would make, he would say something that would make it. So you would have to say something you've never thought of before mm -hmm. and that would break the rule. And so he would just, and I've been doing this more recently. It's been great is to focus kind of into my stomach and then see what random image pops up and share it. And it's almost, it's not a hallucination, but it's like a very intense image. And it's usually an example, a symbolic representation of their problem. And as I'm saying it, it's so, insane that they have to react on the spot they can't use their old role system so that breaks the rules of their role and so if i do something weird or say something weird at least that's how i've understood whitaker and how he's been able to do it so yeah it's not like an intervention it's just him being weird and okay with but it but it's an intervention but it's an intervention it, 
you break a rule by doing that. They mm-hmm. have these preconceived notions of who a therapist, who a therapist is, how a therapist is. should act. Mm-hmm. And that's because they're governed by expectations of who am I, how should I act? Mm-hmm. And so when you shatter those expectations, but you do it in a way where it's like there's an initial sh- shock to it, but then it's like, but what was what was actually like wrong about what? Yeah, yeah, like there's yeah, yeah. like they realize that like everything's fine, yeah. like it's okay that he just did that, and so then that starts to give them permission to be more disinhibited, to be more free, and that is why Phil Stutz told Jonah Hill that he fucked his mother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I knew this was gonna go back to Stutz as you were talking. <laughs> <clears throat> that is why though yeah like i have no question that stutz is familiar with carl whitaker and his his oh, type of work yeah although i do think that that comment was number one inappropriate and also just i don't i don't know if it was do you really think that that comment was like purposeful like he thought oh, yeah. he was super purposeful see, i don't know i think super that that purposeful. was him being like and again trying to be to, to be funny or something well i mean he was already plenty funny enough <laughs> um and again, that's something that I would guess he's never done with any other client before. Yeah. And will never do it again with another client. Oh, he because sure like, won't. you don't replicate stuff like this. It's all just spontaneous and in the moment. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes it authentic, you know, and sincere. And that's what nurtures and strengthens the therapeutic relationship to the point where the client feels enough safety and security to allow themselves to actually be crazy with you and to be disinhibited. And one of my favorite rules that Whitaker identified was there's only enough room for one crazy person in any family system at any given moment. And so Whitaker would often, when someone was starting to act a little crazy, he would just be more crazy than them. Hmm. And by him activating a higher degree (laughs) of craziness, the other person just regulates. Yeah. And I do that with my children Mm -hmm. every opportunity. I like that quote. Can you say it again? Because I do think that that is... There's only enough room for one crazy person at a time in any given system. Mm-hmm. So you were going to share like a an intervention or a paradoxical... Oh, you talked about it, about one paradoxical in- intervention. Yeah. I'm curious though, can we talk about like any other interventions that you guys will yeah, use? Yeah, this is one of my favorites. Families? Um, and again, it's like... I've honestly, very rarely have I ever done like the same intervention twice. You know, I'm sure I've done things that resemble itself, but the method that informs the intervention is always the same. And it's everything we've been talking about. And so I was going to, at one point, plan on, you know, writing a peer-reviewed article about this, but I'm a YouTuber now, not a (laughs) professor. Um, So I'll just share it here. But and this is a this this situation is pretty common, at least in the demographic of couples that I was working with. Um, and so this is an intervention I used a couple times, and so and both times it was super effective. Uh, situation is, you know, uh, mom and dad, their kids are you know older grade school, middle school, they've been married for you know probably ten years, eleven years. Um, they're in their mid forties. Uh, and I was working with all like higher income couples. And so it's like they like, like they have a fine marriage, you know, like there's no, like there's nothing that's necessarily like awful or dangerous. You know, it's like, they're just struggling. They want to have a better relationship. Um, pretty common issue is wife starts to lose interest in having sex. And so when sex, and that's a symptom of a deeper systemic issue, um, but then that becomes the issue. And so 
you know, uh, the mom wants to is not, not as interested in having sex to the degree that the husband is. He's feeling dissatisfied. So a solution that they come to on their own, and this is what comes into my office, but this isn't identified as the problem necessarily. It can become a problem is, you know, she's like, well, why don't you just go watch porn and masturbate? Mm-hmm. You know, and so it was, it was like, you'll get your need met. You know, it's like, I don't really care about those. You won't videos. bother me. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, I'll, you'll leave me alone and give me some relief, you know, because what became more, you know, the attempted solution of the problem of the man not having as much sex as he would like would be to like, like pester for more sex, mm-hmm. you know, and like ask more as if that was going to help. <laughs> it never helped. It makes it worse. Um, and so he'd be like, all right. So, you know, now the husband's on his phone masturbating to pornography um, all the time. Now that starts to irritate, you know, the mm-hmm. wife um, because, well, one, it's like it's annoying, you know. It's like maybe the frequency is getting to be too much. Um, maybe some insecurities, you know, about maybe they catch a glimpse of what, you know, the brand of videos that they're watching. One of them was like, I had no idea porn was in 4K. <laughs> you know, and like that, that made her change everything about porn. Like, I don't know what she was thinking. That, she, that he could see too well? Or? Yeah, like, she's like, like, this is way too clear. Oh, my um, And, you know, but, and the more that he would just get accustomed to masturbating to pornography, the less interested he became in pursuing her mm-hmm. for sex. And so that was another dynamic that started to become problematic was that it's like, I didn't want you to pester me all the time, but now it kind of sucks that you don't seem to ever be interested in mm-hmm. having sex with me. But he was like, I'm going to get rejected, mm-hmm. you know, and this is easy. Um and I know how to do it. And so the intervention, you know, instead of, so she was, you know, the problem was he needs to stop watching porn, you know, and he was like, well, you know, we need to have more sex then. Um, and I do have a rule around, I don't really let men establish a goal of having more sex, you know, cause it's like, I can just, I can address relational issues, but like, if you're looking for me to like, tell your wife to have more sex with you, <laughs> It's like, and I, I say this pretty like visually, like I just say, I was like, I, I don't think it would be appropriate nor helpful if I were to, you know, kind of suggest that what your wife should do is open her legs and allow you to insert yourself inside of her body. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then they usually get it. You know, they're like, okay, I don't <laughs> expect you to do that. But anyway, the solution I found for this was, um, you know, it's like, I wasn't, I couldn't just tell him to stop watching porn. I didn't want to. And I couldn't tell her, um, we'll just have more sex with him then, you know, if that's what he's wanting. And so my suggestion was, I was like, all right, how about this? Um, you said the videos, because they don't want to stop watching, because they'd be like, you can keep masturbating, but don't watch porn. And they're like, but it's so much easier. And like, there's a visual and I can hear, you know? And so um, I su- so I like reflect that to them. So you don't want, you know, the visual and the audio is helpful you, and it'll allow you to masturbate at a higher quality of pleasure. Um, you don't want him watching visuals, you know, of women that are just on the internet that you don't think properly reflects what sex is. Um, would you be willing, you know, for one night, and this is only if they're still having sex somewhat regularly, um, the next time that you're going to have sex with your husband, let him make a video of it. And then that's the only video he can masturbate to 
is pornography that the two of you have made yourselves. Mm-hmm. And so right away, the guy's sold. <laughs> and he doesn't even need to say it. He's just like, he's not moving a muscle, but he's staring at me and saying, thank you. <laughs> um, and the two times I've done it, the like the woman was caught off guard more, um, but was like, that seems fair. Mm-hmm. And so they did it and like it, they loved it. Mm-hmm. Like both of them made like volumes. And now they're making a lot of money that way. I'm uh, just I, you know, it's like I, I'm not trained in financial therapy, no. so I couldn't yeah. advise uh, investments or, or whatnot. Um, but what that did was it started, it broke a lot of rules in how they started to look at sex. Uh-huh. And it introduced a new element and purpose and function to sex. Um, and, you know, ultimately, a big teaching out of strategic and MRI is when they have a surface level problem, it's okay to fix, it's okay to address that problem and let that be the problem, but you need to craft an intervention that the only way for them to solve this problem is if they do it together and in a way where they do something they've never done before. Mm-hmm. And so like, I, even though I knew that wasn't the problem, I let that be the problem and I use it as leverage to get them to solve the actual problem by working together to solve the mm-hmm. problem that they've both identified. Mm-hmm. And like, that's family therapy. It's fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, this is part one of an infinite <laughs> ongoing number of conversations we'll continue to have around this topic. Um, the next one to be excited for is we're just gonna we're just gonna dedicate some of these to Carl Whitaker. Hmm. And we're just gonna dig into Whitaker. And so the next one that we got planned is uh, we're gonna break down Carl Whitaker's rules to help therapists stay emotionally alive. So stay tuned. Thanks so much for joining, Kyle. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Kyle. I'll see you this weekend when we hang out. Yeah. (laughs) And talk about family (laughs) therapy. Wow, you guys sound like so much fun. Thanks for listening to the Therapist Thrival Guide, a podcast produced by Ellie Mental Health. Please be sure to subscribe and review this podcast on your favorite platform. I'm Miranda Barker, executive producer. Jesse Stenbroten is the technical director. And Julia Galloway is our incredible audio engineer. Our production team also includes Lucas Mooney and Fam. Special thanks to our incredible guests that join each week, and we'll see you next week. The Therapist Thrival Guide is one of many creative productions from Ellie Mental Health. Ellie is an outpatient mental health clinic that began in St. Paul, Minnesota, and has continued to expand to over 20 clinics in Minnesota and a growing number of franchisees across the country. We'll be opening over 500 locations in communities nationwide in the near future.